Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. You know that sound? It is the Unfiltered Band, which means, yes, another episode of Unfiltered coming your way. This one officially will go down as episode 140 as we take uh, the other side of life, this time counting down the worst of the acquisitions in the offseason for the New York Metropolitans as the world awaits the fate of the Carlos Correa situation as we tape here. We uh, wonder whether or not this may, if it in fact goes through, become something that goes on this list should this go awry. But as of now, we'll just deal with what has already transpired as we here continue on Unfiltered. And you can join the Unfiltered Revolution anytime at Casey Stern on Twitter. You can find our guest today on Twitter at BrianWright86. As once again, back to uh, bring balance to my force is uh, Mets historian Brian Wright. Brian, thanks for doing this again, man. How are you? Doing great, Casey. Yeah, we do, do need to bring uh, be brought down a peg, so this is a good time to do it. Yeah, this is a good time to do it because I think everybody is uh, trying to figure out what, uh, you know, looking at their watch saying, what day is it? And now it's been 19, 20 days or whatever it's been at this point since the Correa situation uh, was a parade. And now all of a sudden uh, the prospects are otherwise. Uh, we, as always, are glad for the prospects of the show because we're presented by our good friends at Bet Online. And Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. They need source for all your sports wagering information. They've got live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet your favorite sports and events, NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, even golf. Head over to betonline.ag to join. Get your 50% welcome bonus or your first deposit. Make sure to use the promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. It's BetOnline where the game starts. Uh, I want to get started here with, with saying uh, the obvious. The Mets have had a lot of mistakes over the years, and there were many that you could not fit into this list. The uh, multiple times they acquired the Jeremy Bernitzes of the world, uh, how many managers uh, that are not on this list, the Brody Van Wagenens that are not on this list, Roger Cedeno the second time around because what it went well the first time and we traded him. So now let's bring back a subpar version who couldn't play the outfield. He made Daniel Murphy look like a gold glove outfielder with the Cedeno that came back the second time. Isn't it amazing as Mets fans and apologists and, you know, lifelong diehards, Brian, just how many of these we had to choose from? I mean, it's, it's, they're just like, I had to narrow. It was hard to narrow this list, to be honest. And I, for Mets, I had to do like 10 worst. I am doing 10 worst uh, free agent signings. And I had to, I was like debating. I was like, okay, you know, what's number 10? Or like, what am I, what am I leaving out? Or, you know, something like that. And you had mentioned like Roger Cedeno, uh the second time around. Jairus Familia the second time around was a bad acquisition, using him as a as a setup man. Um I mean, we could go on. You said Jeremy Bernard's a lot from uh, a particular year, which we'll get into very quickly. Oliver Perez. Um, oh gosh, yeah, that's um, yeah, that's going to make it for free agent for free agency uh, signings. Yeah. This will not be. This will not be on here. The bad. Yes. yes, yes. These yeah, are these was, are just horrendous acquisitions money. in general. That was crazy. Uh, so. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, worst acquisitions there are plenty. I mean, there are plenty of just bad trades, and so and in the case, like sometimes, and and you'll see some of the results uh, on this list. Um, sometimes it's just a bad 
trade and sometimes it's just a bad signing, but sometimes the result of the trade, uh, specifically talking about trades, is sometimes not as bad as who you gave away, but in, in the case, in some cases here, who you gave away is just as bad as the guy you cut back. Yeah, and you know, in a lot of these cases, you know, you think about it, it comes down to the perception, the reality, the perception being what they were expected to do and the reality of what you got. And, you know, it's interesting as we begin this list because, you know, number 10 in Robbie Alomar belongs on the list because of what happened. But one of the, the problems I've always had with with the discussion that's come of Roberto Alomar, the Met, over the years, and there's been much of it. I, I mean, I've heard everything from Hall of Fame voters who didn't vote for him because when they covered the Mets during that time, they didn't think he tried hard. Um, you know, all the all the different things that didn't go right. From a standpoint of, and I happen to know him personally, I'm not you know, just defending him, but from Steve Phillips' standpoint, when you just think of the perception of the deal, there wasn't anyone who didn't want Robbie Alomar to be a Met at that point. I remember when that signing happened, and for those who are you know, maybe too young to remember this who are listening or watching, fantasy baseball at that time, this was as much of a stat stuffer in every category and the old school five by five roto. Robbie Almar was as good as you had in terms of all the things that he was doing in Baltimore and in Cleveland when he was there, stealing bases, hitting for power, hitting for average, driving in runs, all those sorts of things. He was the best second baseman in the game, Brian. But that wasn't what we saw when he came over. So I just want to split up the fact that, to me, it turns out to be as bad an acquisition as they had, really, when you think of the expectation. But I don't blame the general manager of the front office for getting him because anyone would have wanted Roberto Alomar at that point. And, and that sometimes is the consequence if you're a GM. Sometimes a deal that you make at the time that looks wonderful, the distance the player doesn't perform, then they go, why, why would they do that? Well, that's just, that's just a consequence of being, a, like I said, a general manager. Sometimes you wind up uh, looking bad for a deal at the moment looks great. And this did look great. I mean, Roberto had made 12 straight all-star appearances before he came to the Mets. And that's, and when the Mets, that's where it stopped. Um, I mean, I, you talk about people who, are too young to remember this. I remember 2002, 14, 14 going on 15. And when you're that age, things get exaggerated. Great moments are really great, the best moments ever. Bad times are awful. And this was just, I was just completely distraught by the season. Um, I had a gym teacher who teased me like every day about the Mets. And he just like, he would just constantly just brag on me about the Mets. And this was during that season, 2002, maybe even 2003. So I remember this very well. And Roberto Alomar was, you know, one of the faces of that disastrous 2002 season. And we'll get into another one. We talked about, you know, we also mentioned Roger Cedeno, Jerry Mertz, a lot of pieces that were tried, that tried to rebuild an offense, I think it was the worst in the league in, in 01. Um, but yeah, Elmar was a lock hall of famer. Um, he was coming over from Cleveland. He'd been with Baltimore, been with Toronto, won two world series. Um, you know, he only lasted, he didn't even last two seasons. He got traded in the middle of 2003 season. Um, but like I said, remains just a face of that. Uh, again, uh, it's, just, it's just something, it was just a deal that looked like it blew up in Steve Phillips' face. 
Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I remember at the base of, of Shea, they used to have in the 80s, it, they, one of the slogans one of the years was catch the fever. And I used to joke that Met fever was what you caught when you came here and you got traded here or signed here. Like, for example, when they traded Kevin Mitchell and he was freed to go hit 50 home runs and Kevin McReynolds caught the fever. Uh, when they got Carlos Baerga, who was a multi-time all-star and a brilliant second baseman for the Indians at the time. They weren't the Guardians, no money in the jar. They were the Indians then. And he came over and played second base, and he got the fever. Uh, here's another case of Roberto Alomar, who caught the same fever. I mean, that's it, just it happened to so many guys, seemingly when they came to the Mets, that they would fail. And look, we mentioned Oliver Perez. I mean, he had a 13-3 and three season, I think it was, and with a great ERA and was brilliant for the Pirates and came over and, and you know, whatnot transpired after that. So, you know, I, I think when you look at the Mets, we're used to this. And this list is full of really almost all of these are guys whose names other fan bases remember fondly. They're right now in Alamar at number 10, Baltimore and Cleveland, certainly. At number nine, if you're in South Florida and you're a fan of the Miami or then Florida Marlins, Luis Castillo was part of as good a one-two punch table setting as there was in baseball. And you can make a case that Juan Pierre and Luis Castillo were as big a reason outside of Josh Beckett, who would be first on that list. But after the starting pitching, the second biggest reason why they went that run and beat the Yankees wasn't Pudge Rodriguez or any of those things that transferred. It was Castillo and Pierre at the front of that, that lineup. And Luis Castillo, who was a terrific defensive second baseman as well. Yet we all remember number nine, Luis Castillo, for dropping the pop-up against the New York Yankees on national television. And that's something that I know, Brian, I will never get out of my brain. <laughs> that is one of the, yeah, that is something that sticks with me. Um, I, I won't, yeah. I mean, you talk about, you know, rarely is there a, when you look back at the 2009 season, there were so many disasters from that year. So many bad things happened. Ultimately, that didn't really end to lead to a lot of things. It wasn't like, oh, that cost them anything. But it just sticks with you. It was against the Yankees. A-Rod hit it. Again, everyone saw it. Uh, you know, you know, when New Year's Eve happens, a Yankee person I know, messages me and says, oh, can't wait for the ball drop, and it's a video of that play. And I'm like, I just, I just don't need to see this again. I don't need to ever see it. Um, but, yeah, that's what, that's what he's remembered for. And I loved him in, in, in Florida with, with Juan Pierre at the top of the order. Didn't hurt that they beat the Yankees in 2003. Uh, really uh, made me like a lot more. Um, but, yeah, three, he was a three-time All-Star. I mean, he stole, he was a stolen base threat. And he came over from the Twins in 2007 and collapsed notwithstanding. He was a pretty good contributor in 2007. And they signed him to, um, they signed him to a, um, a, a deal. They signed him to, to a, a, a long-term contract. And that was when everything went bad. So we talk about kind of like this kind of deal, off-season deal. This is one of those just disastrous ones where, I mean, he caught the fever, took a little bit late, took a little time, but he definitely caught it. And uh, the other moment I remember, he was also in 2009, when he fell down the dugout steps. And I remember that. And, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah, he well, yeah, you know, it, was it, it, he became just another one of the laughing stock kind of a, a, the signings. But you make a good point because he came over and he showed some value and that's why they go and make the deal. And that happens to a lot of teams. I mean, to be fair, former Met Angel Pagan went and helped the Giants in one playoff run and they gave him a four-year deal for $40 million that they'd like back. So you know, this happens to, to a lot of teams when you 
are sitting there at the end of a deal and you are in a contract situation and you perform well, you're going to get money. Just ask BJ and then Melvin Upton, who got $75 million for five years, week stretch at a bay in a postseason. Number nine, Luis Castro. I wanted this one to so big, I there's no chance that Mo Vaughn do anything positive. I remember Mo Vaughn. I remember a Sunday night game, and I don't know who it was against, but I do remember he had one big home run, I feel like, as a Met. I think it was a – I'm almost positive it was a Sunday night game. Maybe it was a day game on, on national TV on a weekend. It was definitely nationally televised. He had one big home run that I remember because I remember – and it was it was deep into, like, the distress of Mo Vaughn doing nothing. He was a very likable player when you watched him from afar with Boston – I mean, huge dude, tons of power, big personality. The DH was not available. You wish it was. But as a first baseman with Thump, this is what, when the Mets fans saw Carlos Delgado succeed, this is what, prior to that, they thought Mo Vaughn would be and add to the lineup, and it just became a total, total disaster as a Met. Yeah, I think that game was it, was that. Am I, I might be getting my game Sunday night games confused, but I feel like that was against David Wells. On a Sunday I thought it was against the Yankees. Yankees. I thought it was against the Yankees, too. I wasn't sure, but he definitely had a big home run in a Sunday night game that I remember. Oh, I think it was that in 2002. And then I, and then I remember when he hit the like the Budweiser side in right field. Um, I, that was probably a separate – that was obviously a separate day, but it was like 500 feet. And, I mean, yeah, those are – big moments were few and far between with Mo Vaughn. And I don't know, 2002 wasn't, like, terrible, but the fact that he just barely played after that just – makes this, you know, a ridiculous uh, acquisition. And I think he was acquired, he was acquired with, um, before Kevin Apier. They signed Kevin Apier in 2001, signed like a four-year deal, way too long, way too big of a contract. They dealt that deal, that bloated deal for Vaughn. And Vaughn was coming off, I think he missed the entire 2001 season. And he like, I mean, speaking of falling down the dugout stuff, I think he like tried to make a play and fell down and, got hurt and he wasn't exactly mobile before the injury, but he was really not mobile after that. And um, yeah, I, I, he was better than league average in 02. I think he had like 26 home runs, but the, the knee problems just, just basically wrecked his career in, in 03. And, and that was it. And it just blew up in their face again. Number 10, Robbie Almore. Number nine, Luis Castillo. Number eight, Movon. At number seven, if you're going a per dollar expected and paid in terms of performance on the chart, uh, you'd have to go negative to get to the number that Jed Lowry would be at at number seven. And here's where I want to start with this. I believe the deal was two for 20 that he was supposed to perform at, I, I think. Something close to that. Um Here's the 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 interesting part. So, you know, I, I look, I don't know him extremely well, but I happen to know Jed and I had interviewed him many, many times over the years during his time with Oakland, during his time with Boston. And I knew him as and I, I think he is. I know Met fans don't want to hear this, but a terrific dude, like a really good guy and was a good teammate and a hard worker and was never really 
that great at anything, but was an overachiever. He was a good hitter. He wasn't a good defensive. He, look, they had him playing shortstop. He wasn't a good shortstop. He wasn't a good second baseman. They couldn't third baseman. They couldn't really find where to put him because he was more like a DH playing in the infield. He was not a good fielder, but he was a lefty bat and a good hitter. And he'd come up with clutch hits and he kind of was a gamer. I mean, he was like the very, very poor man's Dustin Pedroia in terms of a guy who was going to be gritty, get the jersey dirty, do all those sorts of things. And that to me, Brian, is what is so almost remarkable about what happened with Jed Lowry because his Met career, it's one thing, look, they've had a lot of guys who have been injured and had you know disappointments because of injuries, had a lot of guys whose injuries we didn't understand. Remember Cespedes has the big hit against the Yankees and he's in there saying, I'm done for the year while they're having a press conference, Mickey Callaway and company saying how excited they were. He's back. So we've had all those weird things, but his Met career became, we don't even know what his injury is. If he's making an effort to get back, if anyone knows where he is, because he wasn't even with the team most of the time, there's so much. I still don't understand what happened to Jed Lowry. Do you? I have no idea. I mean, there were times where people didn't know if he was real. Like, I mean, you saw him in Oakland, but like, was he really on the mess or was he was he around? We didn't know. Was he rehabbing? Was he when is he coming back? I mean, he made eight plate appearances, had a walk, and that's. Yeah, you know, the joke running joke is whenever a new Met gets a hit, you know, he always passed Jed Lowry in the all-time hit list. Um, but I will be accused of, because I think when we, do, we exchanged lists, I had him higher. You did have him higher. I will, I will live up to, I will own recency. Well, I only said only because the money, it, I think because the, the yeah. money wasn't the, look, to us, it, $10 million a year, and that's what I think it was, is a lot of money. But a deal like that, he wasn't, he was coming in to be a uh, catalyst, an ancillary piece, a supporting cast member, where, you know, I don't want to give away the names that are coming, but even the ones that are behind, like Mo Vaughn, Robbie Alomar, you know, these are names that were supposed to be game changers. And that's why, to me, it was a little high, just because it, as much of a disaster as it was, they could have won without him. I mean, he wasn't the Jet Lowry's not the reason those teams didn't win. A host of other things prioritized before you get to Jed Lowry were. And that's why to me maybe it gets bumped back a little bit. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good point. I mean, I think um yeah, sometimes when I, when you make these lists or you evaluate, um, it sometimes comes down to like how important or how crucial was it. I'm thinking like another Alf season acquisition, like Michael Kadir was a did not do anything. But it was 2015. They went to the World Series, so you kind of forgot about it. I mean, just yeah. you know, friend of David Wright. Okay, we yeah. signed him. Gold he was a good clubhouse guy that year too, and all those other things, yeah. and a leader probably on the bench, and and all of that. And I love Cuddy. He's a good dude. I mean, but yeah. to your point, right? Not a not a huge expenditure. Not expected to do that much. And he gave some of the money back. One thing people forget yeah. about Michael Kadire yeah. is he gave back $12 million that he could have taken by retiring, and that is something that you rarely ever see, ever. So mm -hmm. kudos to him. Yeah. They shouldn't have given that $12 million to Jed Lowry, but that's another thing, uh, plus another eight. Uh, number number six, a, a bigger name and a guy who, again, here we go with, depending upon what fan base you're talking about, there are very different thoughts when you bring up the name George Foster. Yeah, and I mean, you put a 
outside the circumstances by which he was eventually released in the middle of the 86 season and how that might have been handled differently today. Um, I think like, you know, the documentary did a good job of outlining that. They did. Um, the, yeah. Um, but his production was so below what was expected. Uh, and it was just obvious that that, you know, up until 86, he was just, he was just too old. And in fact, I think he went to Chicago, went to the White Sox for like two weeks. and That was the end of his career. Um, and for a lot of great, trades that Frank Cashin made, trades, draft picks, you know, signings, whatever. Um, a lot of great trades and draft picks that Frank Cashin made from 80 through up to, you know, 86 um, that led to the championship. This was probably the, the worst of them all. Um, and there weren't, like I said, there weren't many bad ones, um, if maybe just a couple. So, you know, he was a 50-plus home run guy in Cincinnati, but that was like 1977. Um, I think I remember, I, I've seen uh, when he was this, uh, acquired, I think he had to sign a contract when he came to the Mets. He was like, oh, the Plains, you know, someone from LaGuardia better watch out. And, you know, I don't think the Plains were, or whoever the air traffic control is, they weren't, they weren't afraid of George yeah. George no. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it's, and it's, again, it's one of those, you mentioned Cincinnati. It's like, depending upon who you are, Right. So it's like, you know, look, I think of Hubie Brooks, I think of and some of these like had like, look, I still different comparatively if you're an Expos or or if you're a, a Met fan. I, I think about, you know, how many guys look, I mentioned Kevin Mitchell before. And I look, I met fans like Kevin Mitchell, too, but he wasn't a 50 home run bat like he was when he went to San Francisco. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a totally different situation when you think about Foster, what was supposed to be. And look, there are so many of those. I mean, look, to a much larger extent, I could think of the Bernard Gilkeys of the world who were supposed to do X, Y and Z. He had a big year with the Cardinals and then all of a sudden came over his most Bernard Gilkey's most famous thing he did as a Met was appear in the movie Men in Black. That was literally it. I mean, when he's looking over his head, that's it. I mean, that's the right. So I mean, he's not on the list, but I'm just saying how many outfielders we could have picked a hundred guys. That's how many the Mets have. Well, he had a great 1996 was like an amazing season. I think he set. Oh, did he? I don't know how many RBIs he had, but it was over a hundred. I, well I think over. it was. I think it was like 110 if, or somewhere around there. Yeah. And yeah. And then the Mets were like, all right, we need to find this guy long term. Again, and, big problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once you get the contract, sometimes and look, that's not the only team that is uh, guilty of that. Gary Matthews Jr. I mean, you're, you're so many who have and that's another one. A 50 million dollar contract. I think it was at the time guys who have like small stints. And then all of a sudden they get these big deals with whatever team and a uh, you know, problem. Uh, number five, Jim Fergosi. For those who are the younger fans, the fans who sitting there were too young to even remember the Castillo pop-up or exactly who Mo Vaughn is. Oh, that Red Sox guy. Give him a little lesson on, on why Fergosi belongs. I think he does here on this list at five. Yeah, well, Jim Fergosi is more, you know, when you talk about him, people probably don't remember. But if you mention Nolan Ryan, and that was, he was the main principal figure who was, acquired by the Mets in exchange for Nolan Ryan, then it makes a little more sense. And I think, as we mentioned at the top, sometimes it's the person you give up that is more regrettable than the person you get back. And sometimes it's both. In this case, it's more Nolan Ryan, but also Jim Perosi. He had made um, six all-star games with the Angels. And, you know, I'm looking at his baseball reference was, you know, kind of a, I would say an MVP candidate, but he was regularly just a regular, a very good contributor with the Angels. And he just got, he was just not productive. He was hurt a lot. 
Um, and he only he wound up playing just uh, 146 games with the Mets from 72 to 73. And you know, I for I and was I mean, and looking at his baseball reference uh, OPS plus of 85. I personally don't know much about him besides being a manager with the uh, he's a manager with the Angels, but I remember the manager with the Phillies uh, during the World Series season. So this is how much I even know about him. Um, but I forgot that he, after the Mets, he played about five more seasons. I thought like maybe it was kind of like a George Foster situation where I was like, okay, well, right, the end of the run, over. but it wasn't. It was just the Mets yeah. fever again. And it, yeah. it's funny because he didn't have a, he didn't, didn't all start, but he was yeah, he kept playing. But at so. least it was more serviceable. You know, and to your point, it's it's who you get traded. You know, for me, in because that was you know before you know I'm in my mid forties. It's before my lifetime as a Met fan. That trade that that is that way for me is is Lenny Dykstra wants him well. Uh, that's that's that kind of a trade. Now look, Lenny Dykstra is not Nolan Ryan, and certainly Lenny Dykstra now not Nolan Ryan. But I, I think about you know Lenny Dykstra at the time and what he was, and then what Juan Samuel was not. While Lenny Dykstra, by the way, ironically, as a match here, was on the team with the Phillies, who were going and and you know making those runs and going and right. So uh, it, to me. I think when you trade away a fan favorite and then you trade away a guy in a Nolan Ryan who ends up elevating to becoming, think about what he could have been in Mets lore and you watch him away. Look there, the Jeff Bagwell deal is another one in baseball. That's that way, right. For the Sox fans with it, Larry Anderson. Right. So these things exist, but I think obviously for kind of stuck with his name in the wrong place. Uh, the guy who's got his name in the right place, July 1st, every year. Uh, and that's written on a check to him, courtesy of my aforementioned buddy, Steve Phillips, is Bobby Bonilla, who is in at number four. And going back to what you said about Jed Lowry, uh, let's he, pulling back the curtain. I said to you that this needed to be and I feel more comfortable with kind of where Bonilla is settled, because to me, even though it may be misrepresented in some ways, what he represents to the baseball world about where the Mets have been for the last few decades is to me imperative. It's important because it has been as all the jokes that we hear, you mentioned Castillo on new year's, right. And all the Mets going to met. And I could think of yeah, Mr. Met giving the finger. I can think of the sex toys in the background of an interview in the clubhouse. I can think of Mickey Calloway having to go out for two press conferences when you've got a reporter getting into a fight with a manager. I mean, we've got all right. Cespedes, we don't know where he is. He left and then he's safe. A million different issues, right, that we can come up with. Number one, probably, you tell me, I think, that I hear more when people say Met are going to Met that's brought up by anybody over the last three, four decades is probably the Bobby Bonilla situation. It's probably the first thing people bring up. Yeah, and I have I have people on July 1st, because, I don't know, I maybe need to get more better friends because I have people who ask me about, you know, Luis Castillo and, you know, I have people who talk to me about the, the Mets during their terrible 2002 season, so I don't know. But I, in July 1st, I have people who don't know anything about baseball who message me, go, happy Bobby Bonilla Day. And, oh, and, for sure. And I'm like, do you even know about this? And I'm just like, I'm, and I think that is part of it because I don't think, look, look up, on Metsamorize, Michael Mayer has a thread for all the, not all, but a lot of the deferred contracts in baseball. Bruce Suter, Rays paid him 
up until last year, and he just passed away recently. They paid him, you know, for, you know, he was looking like, you know, he had a beard like Santa Claus. Uh, Orioles are paying Chris Davis, I think, to like 2035. Which is one of the worst contracts ever. It's awful. awful. That contract, Um, way worse. I don't want to get into Orioles stuff, but that contract to pay anybody $160 million to hit home runs at basically Coors Field East when you have no pitching is with Scott Boris, who did a brilliant job bidding against no one. You say, if you remember that situation, the Orioles said, well, we're not doing the deal, came off the table, and then they didn't have anywhere else to go, went back and paid him another $10 million. Uh, yeah, sorry. I did, but to your point, in in the pantheon of things, even though it's the Mets meeting with Benia, the Chris Davis situation is, the, and he's a great guy. Far worse of a deal than Bobby Benia. Far worse. Yeah, and yeah, and my point point I'm getting to is just it just is the the narrative, it, and it's the number one talking point when you talk about the LOL Mets narrative, which yes, hopefully one day will will fade away because you know when he was when Bobby Benia was acquired from. Pittsburgh signed as a free agent. He, I mean, he was a great player with Pittsburgh. He wasn't like that terrible at the Mets. He was a pain in the rear end. I mean, his attitude was awful. But he made like a couple All Star games. He was decent. Um, gets traded to the aforementioned Orioles, and then the Mets bring him back. Um, I think that was in a trade with the yeah. Dodgers. Was that? Well, the we first time, the time was was wasn't Alex Ochoa. The first when they traded him away, that's who they got, correct? I believe. Yeah, I'm thinking like damn. I feel like Damon Buford was in this trade. Oh, Damon I, Buford for sure makes sense. I yeah. thought Ochoa was somewhere because I remember one thing about Alex Ochoa. I remember because failed Mets prospects could be a great another great list. Uh, either guys yeah. that they got the Alex Escobars, either guys that they got or guys that they had. Um, many of them now go on to other places like Rafael Montero. Montero just got paid a lot of money, but um. I think about Alex Ochoa. They used to talk about his five tools. And unfortunately, he left the keys to the toolbox and couldn't open any of them. He didn't use any of them. Um, but Benia, how many of these now? Bernitz twice. The second time. Now, the first time didn't work either. But the second time was a disaster. Then you've got Roger Cedeno. The second time was a disaster, right? Oliver Perez, who they decided to then go ahead and make that terrible signing after they already had him once, right? You mentioned Castillo, try him out, and then make the mistake. The Mets apparently don't learn the first time about anything that they've done based on what's <laughs> happening in this list so far. No, no. And then Bonilla, the deferred contract came, come, came after that second try where that second deal when he was there for, I think, a little over a year. I think they maybe released him in 2000, but 99, what I remember and what a lot of people remember is, you know, playing poker with Ricky Henderson in the clubhouse during game six of the NLCS at Turner Field. Um Literally crying my eyes out watching them, watching you know Kenny Rogers walk. Kenny Rogers, uh, Andrew Jones, yeah, while Octavio yeah, Dotello yeah, is in the bullpen ready to go. I remember. And uh, yeah, and Ivan and Ricky Anderson are just like, let's deal them. And then and then they let him go. You know, it continues to be a malcontent, and then that's how the deferred contract, uh, deferred payments happen. So yeah, it's 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 just the, it's the narrative that basically make elevates this on the list and that, that we just continue to talk about it. It's not, you know, his first stint wasn't terrible. His second stint was, was forgettable. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's the ongoing discussion about him that, that puts us this high on the list. I want to take you for number three to uh, 2007, 2000. And well, maybe it was the 2007 playoffs is 2000, 2008. Okay. 
I am covering the postseason of the National League for MLB.com at the time. And I am covering a series, which is a highly contested series, between the uh, Philadelphia Phillies and the Colorado Rockies. At 2006, it was 2007. Colorado Rockies. Mm-hmm. Kyle Loesch is on the mound. I was, it was somewhere in the middle of the game. I was taking a walk to go get some food because I didn't have any obligations until we got after for post game. And I was walking by anybody's Citizens Bank Park's gorgeous field. Anybody's ever been there, it's it's fantastic. Look, Met fans or not, it's fantastic. But we're in Ashburn Alley out there in the outfield in right field. And the bases were loaded, and there was a mound visit, and Kyle Loesch was on the mound. And I was like, I have to see this. And it was that bat where a certain batter hit a grand slam to send the Rockies forward and to send the Phillies home. That batter's name was Kaz Matsui. He almost hit it to me. Um, I don't know how to express, and I bring it up in that moment as we bring up number three, how weird all of that was just for me, because I remember going into the clubhouse thinking, well, they really like him here. They don't know what happened and who he was before he got here. They don't know that Bobby Valentine, who had known all the players in Japan and was a Met guy who we trusted, I'll never forget, said, and it wasn't like he wasn't making any kind of, you know, he he was serious. He said that Kaz Matsui is going to remind, he reminded him of Ichiro, is what, and I'll never forget. That's what he said. Kaz Matsui was a stolen brace threat who couldn't run. And I don't mean like Brandon Nimmo who doesn't run. I mean couldn't run, seemingly. Had no idea how to steal a base. He was a shortstop at the time who couldn't throw. Now, granted, luckily, because of the Jose Reyes situation, uh, you had the option to go back. But remember, they moved Reyes over for Matt Suey, who they brought in. Like, Now, look, it's one thing for Derek Jeter, you know, to, and he didn't move, to if he wanted to at the time say, A-Rod, you play short, right? Now, I remember in Texas, and I was covering it at the time for MLB.com, but I, I remember Michael Young moving over. And he did move over when Elvis Andrus was given the position at shortstop, right? So this happens sometimes. But you moved Jose Reyes over for Kaz Matsui, who couldn't throw to first base. He could not hit. This, to me, I get why it's not number one. But it could have been for number one. And admittedly, I used to call him Spaz Matsui, which is unfortunate and not nice. Because I cannot tell you any redeeming qualities other than he seemed to smile sometimes. I can't tell you anything redeeming about Kaz Matsui. This was as bad an acquisition as off the graph compared to what you were supposed to get. And I apologize for the diatribe, but it ticks me off. This is as bad as you get all time for me in my life with the Mets. Kaz Matsui at number three. The, that was, that was good. That was, feels like my 2002 Mets rant. Um, no, I, the only redeeming quality I remember with Kaz Matsui was that he would hit a home run on every first game of the season. And I oh, yeah, that's right. that's right. I remember 2004 at Turner Field, first leading off, home run to dead center field over the head of Andrew Jones, I believe. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what do we, what do we have here? He's, you know, he's not the next intro. He's like, I don't know. He's uh, a decade match to me. I don't know. It's yeah. Just, I mean, it's this, this guy's going to be amazing. And. I joke that it was a sign of things to come because the next two years he would hit a home, home run in each of his opening games um, in his three years with New York. Um, the only problem was the rest of the game. But yeah, what bothers me is what you just said. The fact that he couldn't throw and he forced Jose Reyes to go to second base, save 
you know, again, Jose Reyes had his own, you know, trying to, to learn coming up the big leagues, learning how to slide. Now he has to learn a new position. Like, how many things are we going to give to this, you know, prospect? Um, and, you know, I know the Mets had tried. They tried with Kiyoshi Shinjo um, from Japan, and he certainly was not, you know, as highly regarded as Kazmet Sui, not even close. Um, he's probably more highly regarded now as, as, as a manager, um, big boss, I think they call him. But, um, but yeah, Kazmet Sui, I heard so much about how much he was going to deliver. I, I forget now that you mentioned the next, the next Ichiro. And yeah, it just, just did not work out at all. And I don't have the same feelings as you do, but I just, it was just, yeah, I, it, I just another an experiment that I don't know where it just went sideways and it reverberated because like you said, it affected other players of the team. And no, look, I, I think, and we got Kazmat Tui at number three. I think about this, uh, as a Nick fan, I, I got to root for growing up Gerald Wilkins instead of Dominique. As an Islander fan, I had Brett Lindros instead of Eric. And even though they're not related, instead of Hideki, we got Kaz. Uh, the, the wrong Matsui. And look, he was... The fact that he had success with Colorado really pissed me off. Like, at the end, it just, like, I couldn't... Like, it wasn't like he was great, but it was like, really? Like, oh, he's now, like, an, a really nice piece to, like... I mean, are you kidding? To a winning team? This guy was terrible. Number two, I feel bad about number two. It's right, but I, I want to say this about number two. And I, I don't know, I don't know him well, but like, and this is just, this is how we are, like, you know, clearly doing this the last 20 years. Like, I've met people that, you know, perception is they're one way and they're not one way, but we all make our perceptions about how these guys are as people, right? Number two seems to be a really quiet, really nice human who probably tried really hard. And to me, Jason Bay at number two is as good an example, and there are many of them, of a guy who couldn't succeed in a big market as we've seen. Now, he did have a little bit of success, I believe, with Boston, right? Which yeah. is which is ironic and interesting. But that was after, was that after the Mets? Was that after? No, that was before. That was before. That was before. So that was how the Mets got duped, I guess, with it. But I think about Carl Crawford going from Tampa Bay and ending up in Boston and how much he failed. I think about the likes of the Carl Pavanos and what he did in the mix of that team we just talked about with Luis Castillo when he went to New York and what happened to him with the Yankees. I think about guys like Carlos Beltran and Diaz before they turned it around, right? And Bay was not able to do that. Jason Bay in Pittsburgh was a player you'd want. He seemed to be the guy. I believe the deal that he had with the Mets, correct me if I'm wrong, was it five for 60? I feel like. Was it more than that at the time? I don't even remember. Now, look, those numbers now seem like nothing. But I, I feel like it was like $60 million. I could be wrong. But Jason Bay seemed like a guy who would be a find. And instead, he was more like, if you recall, the home run derby that Jason Bay hit in. For those who don't remember, when he was on the Pirates at PNC, they had the All-Star game. I was there. He hit no home runs. Zero. He swung and missed twice. It's the only time ever watching that in person I've seen a player swing and miss on a home run derby. But that was in front of a fan base that was waiting for their son, the Pirate, Jason Bay, and he failed. 
I wish we could have taken that and just said, hey, do you think in the spotlight in New York this could be a problem? Because that's the Jason Bay we got. He was worse as a Met than Kaz Matsui was. That bad. Oh, yeah. And it's and especially for how much he was paid. And I'm looking at, I'm looking this 60? up. It looks like it was four, four for 66. Four for 66. Okay. Yeah. More than I thought. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty bad. And I, and I w- yeah. And I retroactively feel bad because I loathe Jason Bay more for what he represented. And probably I should have been more upset at, I don't know who I should have been upset at. But, but yeah, it seemed like a very nice guy who just, no, I, and I don't mean that doesn't mean you can't be angry at it. I'm just saying it just yeah. he seemed to he, I don't think he could hack it in New York. I mean, I, I, I hate saying no. that. I think he got overwhelmed and he just basically lost all his confidence is to me what it seemed like. He forgot how to just go out there and play. And and to me, I, yeah. you tell me, I think he's as big a victim. And I'm not trying to give him an excuse because it's not an excuse. It's why he's this high on the list. But I think, you know. This is why you get worried when you bring guys from smaller markets and guys who aren't from the area and guys who don't have, look, he's not a me, me spotlight guy. You could tell he's kind of a quiet guy. Sometimes guys like that succeed, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times they get overwhelmed. To me, he just got eaten up. And then once the press got on him, forget it. I mean, he got worse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that was a 2000. As an off season between 2009 and 2010, I think it was, and the debate was like him or Matt Holiday, and yeah, I I remember like oh Jason Bay, look, look what he did in Boston. I mean, yeah, he's hitting the hit the green monster, but it'll be it'll be fine. And you know, even with City Field dimensions, I still think he would have been productive. But yeah, obviously not. And and it just yeah, maybe this is a big contract plus the big market um, really had a toll on him. And I remember. He, crashed into the outfield wall at Dodger Stadium. I don't remember what year that was, but that did certainly didn't help his cause. Um, but yeah, I think when you take into account like money, how much the big of a contract and how much he produced, it's 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 way up there. I mean we're gonna talk about number one, but uh, just in terms of production he, he's he's probably the worst just in terms of how much value would, that we thought and how much he actually put yeah, out. Yeah, I, I look I think you can argue um there will be people who would think Bonilla should be one. There are going to be people who uh, may think Roberto Alomar should be one. For, I mean, it depends on what era you watched or what you're thinking or what you're – there's no right way. The, the problem is they're all wrong. All of these were, were terrible moves one way or the other. Ten, Robbie Alomar. Nine, Luis Castillo. As we pop up to eight with Mo Vaughn, uh, who hit plenty of those. Uh, number seven, Jed Lowry, who, to your point, didn't have any hits. He just walked. Uh, George Foster, who walked into the sunset. Uh, Jim Fergosi, who walked in at the wrong time. Bobby Bonilla, who walks to the bank every year on July 1st. Uh, number three, Kaz Matsui. If he drew a walk, he wouldn't know how to get to second base anyway. Number two, Jason Bay, who if he hit doubles and got to second base, that would have been good enough. And then number one, which is, to me, there are certain teams that are, look, Generation K gets talked about a lot. And I lived through that, as did you. And I remember laying on a beach and Jason Isringhausen. I was listening in a boombox to him. I was in, in uh, it, it, I, it was at Tobey Beach, and he was going for like his ninth win to go to nine and two. And that one year he had, and I remember him, Wilson, and Pulsifer, and all they were going to do. I think about 
the disasters that we had recently with some of these teams. There are teams that for everybody are like, what's that laughable Met team that's the one that's worse than any? And there's none worse than the best team that, that money could buy. And the Mets that put together the Eddie Murrays and all of the great pieces led by number one, Vince Coleman, that were going to come in and they were all established names and they were going to take this team to the greater heights with the script New York on the road uniforms and all of that. And the only fireworks that we got with Vince Coleman were ones that he set off himself. That's the sadness. Yeah. Firecrackers only came from Vince Coleman on lines. Was that outside? Now I'm trying to remember. Was that was that outside the ticket office? Where was that? I think that was in the parking lot of Dodger Stadium. The, the parking lot. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And parking. there was like a crowd. I I feel like that was he was in a car with like Eric Davis, and he like there was a crowd of people, and he threw it. For some reason, I don't know why someone would just have a firecracker. I don't know. I don't. I don't use explosives or anything like that. Was, but yeah, I mean, he did it, and then it injured uh, a few people, including a one-year-old. Which is just—I mean, it doesn't matter. You injure people; it's bad enough. But you injure a one-year-old, it's you. Yeah, you deserve what you get. And the Mets cut him. Um, I think he—you know—he still played. Murray played with the Mariners, like in the ALCS. So I don't know why he still continued in the league when he did. Um, but you know when they. Brought him in, I you know it was he was brought in just after Daryl Strawberry left. So, you know naturally you trade the power of Daryl Strawberry for the the speed of Vince Coleman. Oh, right. um, yeah, and he's we led the league. He led the league, I think, every year he was in a major leaguer from '85 through '90. Um, and then with the Mets, he was there for part of three seasons. I think he stole 99 bases, which for him was compared to what he would, was doing in St. Louis, uh, which is like 100, over 100, which is absurd now. Um, and it was really high back then. 99 in three seasons is, is really not much. Um, and, if, you know, like I said, if we were if we were to try to compare his value and performance of like Bay and Matsui and some of the others, it's this is not the worst. But when you take into account just the, the complete pain and the off the field issues on top of just not being a good player, this is what makes him a clear number one. I mean, he fought with Mike Cubbage, I think he was the bench coach at the time. They had an altercation. I remember he swung a golf club in the clubhouse and hit Dwight Good in the face. I mean, there are a lot of, and then as we talked about the firecracker incident. And this was just representative of just so many terrible things with those, especially the 92 and 93 teams. Um, you know, Brett Saberhagen with the bleach, bleach water gun, Bob Bonilla. I mean, Vince Coleman was probably at the top of the jackass list. And that's, that's pretty, that's what puts him at the top. It's, it's not that he wasn't that good. It was just that he had all these off the field issues. And the Mets, the Mets did the only sensible thing they could do after the firecracker incident, and that's cut him. Yeah, which uh, you got to at least applaud the Mets because you would think based on all the LOLs that we've had, they've made mistakes where they haven't done mm -hmm. such things uh, in, in the past. Uh, Roberto Alomar, Luis Castillo, Mo Vaughn, Jed Lowry, George Foster, Jim Fregosi, Bobby Bonilla, Kaz Matsui, Jason Bay, Vince Coleman, and to the late Alex Trebek, I will take uh, things we hope none of our current acquisitions end up in a list of uh, for 500, Alex. Uh, Brian, appreciate you. We'll continue with these as we go here, and uh, good luck on uh, 
watching your, your watch and refreshing Twitter with Carlos Correa. We wait uh, what happens with him. And uh, hopefully he will not end up on this list if he ends up as an acquisition for the Mets. Fingers crossed. Thanks so yes, much, Fingers crossed. You, you too. Thanks uh, for being with us on Unfiltered. Keep up with us, of course, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, everywhere you get your podcast. And the Unfiltered Revolution continues. We, as always, are presented by our good friends at Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.